0: So we are in the, I think this is the fifth week of the Remade series. It's an eight-week series uh, that we're in celebrating the new life that we have in Christ. Because uh, what, we, what we started with, uh, it began on Easter Sunday, and we started with this truth. Uh, that you are made into a brand new creation. Uh, that you are made new in Christ, when we, when we make that step of faith, there's something profound that happens in our hearts, and we are made brand new. What we talked about on Easter Sunday, just by way of recap, is that God's plan, God's narrative, the way, the, the, the way this story is going, or where this story is going, is ultimately towards recreation, or all things made brand new. God wants to redeem this place, this place being Earth. He wants to. Re- he wants to redeem it. Uh, he doesn't want to destroy it. And so we we have uh, in Scripture this sort of cosmic renewal. The great thing is that in that cosmic renewal, you and I are also made brand new. Uh, that what is what is sort of real on a cosmic scale is also real on a personal scale. That in Christ, you and I are indeed made into a new creation. We went from there to talk about the new life that we're given. And we, we really talked about in that message conversion. How do we know that we've entered into this new life in Christ? What does it mean to be converted? You hear that a lot in religious circles that they were converted to Christ. They were converted to this or that. Uh, and so we talked about what does this converted new life actually look like? And, and what we learned in that, that sermon, in that, that passage there, is that Christianity is not a set of practices or doctrines that you take up, but it is a converting power that takes you up. In other words, we're sort of taken up into this life of Christ. It's not something that we just say, oh, yes, I I want to take on all of these practices. That's a converting power that changes something profound in us. It takes us up. Uh, We went from there to talk about the new perspective. And we talked about suffering, sort of this universal This universal thing that we all experience. And and what we learned is that when we suffer, we have to be aware that Jesus himself suffered everything for us. That Jesus took on the ultimate injustice that we might receive mercy. And, And that gave us a new perspective on our suffering. That if we realize that when we suffer, that Christ suffered all. That when we realize that, we're, that we become victims uh, of injustice, that the ultimate injustice was brought up upon Christ himself in order that we might receive mercy. Uh, and, and what we talked about is, is a great antidote to your suffering. Is to help those who also may be suffering. That as you experience injustice, that if you would, if you would take a step of faith and begin to help answer the injustice that's being brought upon other people, if you would be a, a sort of an agent of mercy, it would bring our, per, our suffering into a brand new perspective. And uh, last week we talked about uh, a new God. And that is, that is not to say that God somehow changes or becomes new. Uh, he he who, who was, He is, is, is to come. He's unchanging. He's an unchanging, everlasting God. What we talked about is that when we experience new life in Christ, our God changes. In other words, our heart has a propensity towards idolatry, uh, that that we have this propensity to make something or someone the given the seat in our heart, so to speak, that our number one allegiance uh, is is naturally going to someone other than God. And so when we experience this new life in Christ, we are transformed. Uh, That thing is dethroned It is replaced by God himself. We talked specifically then last week about greed and how that plays out in our life and how greed and the accumulation of wealth can oftentimes become an idol in our lives. Now, the thing that I want to realize for all of us as we walk through this this series, and we have a few weeks left, is that all of these things are a particular look at the big picture. Uh, In other words, all of these things are sort of expressions of the new life that we have in Christ. It's it's a particular way of of looking at the way in which we have been remade. I, I don't want us to go through this series seeing like all of these things sort of disconnected from one another. But if we could place a big umbrella and say we are made new in Christ and through that we are given new life. New perspective, new hope we're going to talk about, and then, and then today we're going to talk about new identity. So as we're made new in Christ, we're given all of these things that are made brand new in us. Does that make sense? Okay, so today I want to talk to you about new identity, and um, identity is so important because how we perceive ourselves or how we see ourselves and who we believe ourselves to be affects our actions, in other words, I would argue that as you go, go about your life in, in, in work or at school or in your neighborhoods or, or, or wherever you happen to find yourself, the actions that you participate in are linked directly to whoever you believe yourself to be, your sense of identity. Let me, let me sh- sh- like flush this out a little bit for you. The teenager who in one moment is talking about all the good that she wants to do in the world, And then in the next moment is making all kinds of bad decisions. Bad decisions that are just stacking up on top of one another. That teenager is stuck in an identity crisis. Really trying to figure out and working out who am I really? Am I this person Made righteous through faith in Christ? Or am I this person? Am I the sum of all my experiences? What is it that gives me my sense of identity? And so if in one moment they're talking about doing all kinds of good, and in the next moment they're making all kinds of bad decisions, perhaps as parents, our best approach is to begin to speak to the good identity in them. This is who they are in Christ. Because that teenager is stuck in an identity crisis. Does that make sense? Let me give you a couple more examples. The overweight person oftentimes will forge an identity around their weight so that when it comes to losing weight, they're often fearful of that success in weight loss, perhaps because of their identity is so forged of this is who I am. I am overweight. So we can form our identity, and I use that as an illustration just because to, to say that our identity can be forged from any number of things. Whether they're external, whether they're internal, we can take all sorts of these, this information from who we've become, our circumstances, all of these things, and we begin to forge an identity around it. Another thing is the rich person. They might drive a, a, a luxury car, they might drive. Uh, they might wear designer clothes, they might do all of these things. They have formed an identity around the luxury car and the designer clothes. If you were to take those things away, all of a sudden their sense of identity has been lost. They don't know who they are anymore because they, the thing that their identity was so attached to has been taken away. And so all sorts of things forge our identity, and it affects how we act. Make sense? That's why the the, the really rich guy who doesn't have a generous heart, but whose heart is tied to all the things that he gets from being rich, comes across as a jerk because he's acting rich. His identity is formed in that. So our identity informs our action. What the Apostle Paul wants to do in this passage that we'll read is he wants to give us a brand new identity. He wants to give us the assurance of this is who you are in Christ. And so let me give you a new sense of who you are. Let me give you a new sense of identity so that from that identity, all of your actions will begin to flow. But we've got to start with this is who we are because of our new life in Christ. This is who we are because we've been remade. Okay? So if you're following along in your Bible app notes, the passage is right there for you. Uh, if you want to open your Bibles, uh, I'll be in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, I want to read verses 17 through 21. I'll probably read the first verse in the next chapter as well, uh, which isn't listed there uh, in the in the app or probably on the screen either. Uh, but... But uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21, uh, let's walk through this together. And I believe that, that God wants to say something powerful to us this morning. It says this. Join together in following my example. Now, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Christians in Philippi or the Philippians. Okay, so join together, in, uh, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as often, uh, for I have often told you that before and now tell you again, even with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. And their mind is set on earthly things. And here's where he wants to give us that new identity. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. I love how he makes that specific. He doesn't want to just say we wait for a Savior from there. If he had just said that, we would be looking for saviors all over. But he says a Savior is coming from there. And then he makes it specific, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we talked about yesterday or last week with, with idolatry. Idolatry is counting on someone else or something else to be our Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior, our Savior alone. Who, by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Therefore, my dear friends, the dear brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the faith in this way, my dear friends. Now, Paul, in this passage, is is really contrasting or comparing two sort of modes of conduct or two lifestyles. The first lifestyle that he talks about is those who are enemies of the cross. He says, Follow my example, follow the example of. of, Those who are are doing as we do. But there are also this group of people that Paul describes as being enemies of the cross. And then he doesn't just leave us there, though. He doesn't just say, oh, they're enemies of the cross. Now figure out what that means for yourself. He gives us very specific things of what that means. And the first thing that he says is, is Paul describes those who are enemies of the cross as having their God as their stomach. Their stomach is their God. Now, is that just a way of saying, oh, you, you overeat, or you eat when you shouldn't to, or you eat to meet all these needs other than hunger in your life? Like, is he talking very specifically about that? Or is he using this as an example of a broader thing? And I think he's using, he's using this idea, the stomach is their God, uh, to give us insight into a broader idea. And that is that those who are enemies of the cross have as their God the body and all of its desires. The body and all of its desires. And so we will live for whatever feels good, whatever appeals to the senses, regardless of the harmful effects that it has on our bodies ourselves, our emotional, uh, the, the harm to our emotions, the harm on other people. Uh, it doesn't matter. Those who are enemies of the cross are those who are answering every call of the body's desire. Now, some of those desires, in fact, many of those are desires are good, given by God, necessary. You all at 12 o'clock when I'm not done preaching will have a desire for food. And you'll start thinking about Chipotle and the Olive Garden and Texas Roadhouse. Amen. Okay? That is a good God-given desire and one that you should answer. Unless God has specifically called you to a fast for particular spiritual reasons, it is good to answer that desire. What happens, though, is that when those desires get all out of whack, when they get out of balance, and when they become our God, that's what Paul is talking about. The enemy of the cross, the enemy of of Jesus and the gospel, is one who takes this physical body and all of its desires and runs them completely out of proportion, completely out of whack. And and this is is exactly what you have in our culture today. In our culture today, the the mantra is, do what feels good. Whatever senses, whatever desires you have, answer those desires in any way so that you will fulfill a selfish need. And in doing that, it runs those desires completely out of whack. And, And Paul is saying, these are in fact enemies of the cross. So he's tying this, this idea of the body and its desires to enemies of the cross. But then he goes back to the body at the end of the passage. And he says, you will be given a glorious body. You'll be given a glorious body modeled after the, the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. And, and I think what he means here is that resurrection life is going to be given to those who are in Christ. That Jesus, just as Jesus like, went through death came to life on the other side through resurrection, was given a glorious body, a very physical body, right? We shouldn't think of the resurrected Jesus as some sort of of ghost walking around. He was given a very physical body, Uh, given life, and and what Paul is essentially saying to us, that we'll also be given a glorious body, that we will also experience resurrection life for those who are in Jesus Christ at the end of time. And so so part of what we will receive in this resurrection life is new bodies modeled after the resurrected body of Christ. Now, some of you are like, this is like a barrel of fish hooks, okay? And if you're there today, stick with me. Uh, It's going to get better the sermon is going to get a lot better, okay? It's already good, but it's about to get a lot better, all right? So stick with me if you're just like, wow, okay? All right, so in other words, let me tell you this. In other words, we should get out of our minds a, the, the idea of a disembodied existence in heaven, we should get that out of our minds. That's not a scriptural idea, this disembodied existence in heaven. Paul is very clear here. He's very clear elsewhere in his letters that our current bodies will be redeemed into Another very physical body, but a new sort of body modeled after the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. And what he says then is in light of our resurrection life and in light of our new bodies, we shouldn't make our current bodies and all of its desires the most important thing. That's the bottom line. In light of the resurrection life that we're going to be given, in light of our new glorious body, we shouldn't make our current bodies our God in answering all of their desires. And to live in that way, Paul says, is to live in destruction. And to, it will lead to destruction. Because the present body will decay and die. Uh, unless there are any vampires here, we are all mortal. This body will die. Okay? No, I don't believe in vampires. Okay? Because some of you are going to be like, I told you so. The pastor said. You know, some of you are going to be like, Twilight is so true. And, and it's, so, that was a joke. Okay? No vampires. The present body will decay and die. So to worship it then is to make a covenant with death. The, present, the bodies that we find ourselves in now are decaying, will die. And so to answer the, every call and desire and sense and appeal of our current bodies is to make a covenant with death, which is why, which is why we must live with discipline, Okay, so that's enemies of the cross. Paul's comparing two lifestyles, enemy of the cross, and then he gives us this new sense of identity. He gives us the good news, and he says to the Christians in Philippi, but you, but we together are citizens of heaven, and we eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. And so on one side, we have enemies of the cross. And on the other side, we have citizens of heaven. But what does that really mean? Right? Because uh, here's where we um, automatically, when we think of being citizens in heaven, I think sort of the broad idea of what this means is that we will be disembodied, we'll leave this place in favor of some other place, somewhere else, up there, out there. And and so we say, this world is not my home, and I'm just passing through. And uh, and a lot of times we we go like this. (laughs) This world is not my home, I'm just passing through. Okay, This is not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying... That, that this world, oh, this world is not your home. We're just passing through, so don't worry about it. Let let the world go to hell in a handbasket. Let it just swirl down and get worse and worse, and, and it's just going to be destroyed, and so who cares? Paul is not saying that. And I think a lot of times that's where we automatically jump to is this idea that, that this place doesn't matter. What happens now doesn't matter because, oh, I'm a citizen of heaven, which means one day I'll leave here. I'm just passing through. It's not my home, so forget about it. Paul is not saying that in this passage because the tendency is, to, is to, for us, again, to say this world doesn't matter because I'm not going to be here anyway. How many times have you heard that? Probably a lot. But I would argue with you today, and I'm going to give you some things to back this up, that this is not what Paul is, call, is talking about. Because this attitude, this I'm just passing through with a grin and a wave, and I'm going to get out of here anyway, leads to profound disengagement. It leads to profound disengagement with what's happening in the life of my neighbor, what's happening in in, in the world, the injustices that the world is experiencing. Under this sort of framework, injustice becomes if you have time and a passion for it, you should do it. You should help answer the injustice in the world because it's a good thing and God loves us all. But if we understand that, that, that God wants to redeem this place, again, we're going back to the Easter message, that God is on sort of this cosmic mission of redemption and renewal. If we believe that, then answering injustice, caring for the poor, doing all of these things that the gospel is all, of, all about, does not just become, if you have time and have a passion for it, but it becomes the calling of the church to participate with God in making this brand new world. Are you with me now? some of you are like, I'm not sure. And some of you are like, amen. Okay? So this idea, I think, is, a, is there's, some, there's, some ten, there's some split thoughts on all of this. Uh, but I, I just want to help, help you maybe get a handle on the idea that Paul is not talking about, when he talks about being a citizen of heaven, this idea, we're just passing through. We won't be here, so forget about this place. Because that leads us to profound disengagement. And it leads to a very individualistic faith. Are you in or are you not in? And if you're in, then just do your best to get other people in because this place is going down. Versus if we understand that we're sort of God's agents in the world to help bring about the redemption in the world, as we ourselves are redeemed and being redeemed, then all of a sudden it doesn't become, let's just get you in so we can get you out. It becomes an invitation to participate in good news in the world, okay? Now, some of you have further questions, I know, but we need to move on, okay? So what is Paul talking about then when he talks about being citizens of heaven? Let me give you a little bit of history. Uh, So for those of you who are history buffs, you'll love this. Um, In 42 BC, Mark, Antony, and Octavian defeated the assassins of Julius Caesar in the city of Philippi. And in victory of that defeat, Philippi was made into a Roman colony. Okay, so Rome is a world superpower. Antony and Octavian joined forces to defeat uh, the assassin, the, the person who assassinated Julius Caesar... They, that, that battle goes down and that victory is won in the city of Philippi. In celebration of that, Philippi is made into a Roman colony. Now, this, of course, meant that anyone that lives in Philippi now has the rights and the privileges uh, that, that would only be given to those in Rome or at least in Italy, right? Right? But now in Philippi, that is not in Italy, and not part of Rome, because it's made a Roman colony, begins to experience all of the privileges and the rights of those who would only live in Rome. It was as if the culture of Rome was now being expressed outside of Rome itself, but inside Philippi. Are you with me? Make sense? Okay. So now once the the Roman colony is established as a Roman colony, there there became all kinds of of retired Roman soldiers who also made their home in Philippi. Because they're out fighting battles for Rome, they didn't want to return all the way back to Rome, and they said, here's a Roman colony, it's nice and close, it's in Philippi, I'm I'm a retired soldier, I'm going to make my home there. Now also, Rome would not want them back. All these soldiers that they have sent out, there's no way that Rome would want them to come back because there was already underemployment and overcrowding and getting a bunch of roman soldiers back into rome would just make the overcrowding and the underemployment problems worse and so they would find homes in these roman colonies and so what we have then is in the city of philippi if someone were to say i am a citizen of rome what they did not mean is that in one day then i'll be going back there and escaping this place, what they would have meant is that they are now ordering their life to bring the rule, reign, and culture of Rome to the place that they now inhabit, their current residence. So, being a colony, of uh, being a colony, a Roman colony, is not about returning back to home. It's about extending the life of Rome into the colony. Do you see where I'm going? And so these these Roman citizens that happened to be living in Philippi had a dual citizenship. They were citizens of Rome, but they were inhabitants of Philippi. And part of that dual citizenship was to offer up their allegiance and where their allegiance truly lied. And so when it came to things of culture, when it came to lifestyle, when it came to ordering their life... Ultimately, was there, did their allegiance lie with the traditions and values of Philippi before it was a Roman culture? Or did their uh, allegiance lie with Roman culture, Roman rule, Roman tradition, and Roman's Lord, who was Caesar? And if you were a Roman citizen living in Philippi, you would have said, My allegiance does not belong to the tradition and value of Philippi. It belongs to the tradition and value and the Lord of Rome even though I'm resident in Philippi. Are you with me now? What Paul is doing is he's using that same sort of idea and that same sort of language to call us citizens of heaven. You can live as enemies of the cross where your God is your stomach and you're listening to every call and desire of this body, but this body is dying and decaying. And to to, to answer its every appeal is to lead to destruction and is, in fact, idolatry. So instead, let's, let's glory in the fact that we will be given a glorious body, that we are given resurrection life, and that we are citizens of heaven, is what Paul says. And so, ultimately what this means is, he does not mean that we will one day abandon this place so that we should just let the world go and do as it pleases. What he means is that we should go about our life on earth seeking to bring the reign and rule of heaven here. That's a totally opposite approach. If we say citizenship in heaven means I'm just passing through, see you later, then all I'm trying to do is experience a little bit of heaven while I can, just get glimpses of it. And when it comes, I say, oh, that's great. If we say that I'm a citizen in heaven and I see that as my responsibility is to bring the reign, rule, culture of heaven to here, then all of a sudden I am engaged, not disengaged. All of a sudden I'm connected rather than disconnected, and all of a sudden I'm not just trying to experience a little bit of heaven, I'm trying to say this is what heaven is like, this is the way of the kingdom of God, this is the way of Jesus, let me show it, let me demonstrate it, let me make it, let me make it tangible for you, where it used to be intangible. Does that make sense? It's a totally different approach. And this, I believe, is what Paul is talking about when he talks about us being citizens in heaven. And this, of course, is loaded with all kinds of implications, right? And the first implication is where does your allegiance really lie? If we are called citizens of heaven then we have to ask the question, where does our, our true allegiance actually lie? That if there, was, if there were two allegiances and they were in conflict with one another, where does my allegiance ultimately lie? And Paul wants to encourage us and say that your allegiance lies if you are made new in Christ, if you are a citizen of heaven, your allegiance does and in fact should lie with the way of the kingdom of God, the way of the cross, rather than being an enemy of the cross. And so the first implication is where does our allegiance lie? Now the second implication has to do with this this verse 1 in chapter 4 that I read where he he, uh, encourages the the Philippian believers to stand firm. He says, stand firm. Now we could stand firm just sort of in our own strength, like I'm doing my best to stand firm, right? Right? And how many times do we live there we're like, I'm, I'm really doing my best. I'm falling down sometimes, but I'm really trying to stand firm. And uh, what, what ultimately, what, what's being talked about here is, based on our allegiance, we can stand firm. Where does our allegiance lie, which enables us to stand firm? Let me, let me clear it up for you. This is said better than I could by uh, theologian N.T. Wright. He has this to say, stand firm in the faith does not mean remaining constant in faith. It means giving allegiance to Jesus rather than to Caesar as the true Lord. Paul describes the church and its Lord in such a way that the Philippians could hardly miss the allusion to Rome and to Caesar. And so this is the greatest challenge of the letter of Philippians, that the Christians in Philippi, whether or not they themselves were Roman citizens, would think about what it means to give their primary allegiance not to Rome, but to heaven. Not to Caesar, but to Jesus, and to trust that Jesus would in due time bring the life and rule of heaven to bear on the whole world, themselves included. And so it's this idea of allegiance does my allegiance lie with Rome or does it lie with heaven or does it align with heaven. And I think we can bring this into a modern day context and say ultimately when it really boils down to it where does my allegiance lie does my allegiance lie in being an American or being a Christian. And they're not always the same. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. But particularly when it comes to the political realm, can I just be really honest with you for a moment? What I see happening is people giving their allegiance and their hope to a president who's Republican. And if we can just get a Republican in the office, then we'll fix our nation. And let me tell you, that is an allegiance and a hope dramatically misplaced. Because ultimately what it boils down to is I, don't, is I don't see it as my responsibility to bring the culture and, and the, the honor and the way of heaven to earth as, as a citizen of heaven. I'm sort of, I'm sort of subcontracting that out to the president if we could just get a Republican in here who could fix our nation. But let me tell you, the president does not have the kingdom of God as his ultimate allegiance. He can't. Now, he can, be, he, can, he can be a good leader. He can portray Christian values, all of these things. But our allegiance has to lie in heaven. Our allegiance has to lie in the kingdom of God and the way of the cross. Now, I've already said too much politically, and I'm already getting emails. So some of you are not taking notes. You're drafting an email. I look forward to it. Okay? So I've already said too much about that. So Paul says that we are tasked with bringing heaven's culture to the place where we find ourselves, but we, but we also don't do that perfectly, right? I, I mean, we're, we're tasked with this great commission. Bring heaven's culture to earth as citizens of heaven. And, and we get all pumped up and we're like, yeah. And then we try to do it and we're like, oh, <laughs> And, and, and we realize that we don't do it perfectly because we, 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 are sort of, we struggle with, with sin and, and we, these physical bodies that we find ourselves in are often weak and they're decaying and they're, they're going to die. But because we don't live this out perfectly is why we hold fast to the sure hope that God will make one, one day make all things new. In some way, it's our weakness that enables our hope to be so real. Because if, if we found out that I could just do this perfectly all the time, year after year after year after year, then I think our tendency would be to say, I, I don't need to depend on the Lord. I don't need to hope in Christ and the renewal of all things. It, it, yes, God can empower us. Yes, we can live in great victory because of Jesus. But for the times that we do mess up, the times that we don't live this out perfectly, give us the assurance and sort of awaken in us the hope that one day all things will be made brand new. And so in our weakness, we can take one of two routes. We can say, oh, there, there you have it. I'm weak. I can't do this. I'm not good enough. God doesn't love me. I can't be a person of faith because I've let Him down. Or we can rely on the grace of God and rely on the empowerment of God to live in victory. But the times when we do mess up, we can, we can rest in the hope that one day all things will be made brand new. And I think that's the good news. And that's what I want to encourage you to do today. Is to rest in the hope of all things made brand new. So on one hand we have... We can worship our body and its desires. And then on the other hand, Paul says, we can, we can rest in our true citizenship. We can rest in the hope of all things made new in the moments where we don't live this out perfectly. And we can rest in the reality that our bodies themselves will also be made brand new. So much for that disembodied existence in heaven somewhere. So let's hold fast to the task at hand, Paul says. Or I think Paul wants to, to push us toward. You are citizens in heaven. Now, some of you are, are, are very sharp listeners, and you've said, I thought this message was called New Identity. Uh, so, where's the new identity? And uh, what I want to say is that um, it is around this reality citizenship in heaven that we must forge our identity. We can't allow our, our circumstances, our experiences... Uh, all of these sort of external factors, these, the money, all of these things, we can't allow these things to form our identity. I think what Paul wants to say, and the reason he uses this language of citizens, is that it helps forge in us identity. When you talked about being a Roman citizen, that was a sense of identity. That was a sense of pride. I am a Roman citizen. And Paul wants us to, to have that same sort of identity forged in the fact that we are not citizens of Rome, but we are citizens of heaven. Let me illustrate it to you this way. In the 1980s, Texas had a big litter problem. Big litter problem. Like they were spending $25 million a year cleaning up their streets, their roads, their neighborhoods. And the costs in the 90s or in the 80s were up. They were rising 15% a year to clean up the mess in Texas. thought for sure I'd get an amen when I talked about a mess in Texas. And so they tried all kinds of things to, to beat the litter problem. They tried like really nice signs that said, please don't litter. And, um, and then they tried like roadside uh, trash cans that, that said, you know, pitch in. And they had that little man with the cup pitching into the, you guys know what I'm talking about. Then they had a cartoon owl that said, I remember this too. I th- this this campaign went into Kansas at some point in the 80s or 90s. They had this little cartoon owl that said, "Give a hoot, don't pollute," and like that that will that's emotional right there, man. Like cartoon owl just pulling your heartstrings. Like, oh man, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna throw this trash out because the owl said, "Okay." So then. Um, so Texas had a huge problem on their hand, and here's what they had to do. They, they hired the, the nation's leading researcher on litter, Dan Sirik. And uh, he and his firm, they knew that the people that were littering in Texas weren't responding to these nice campaigns because the, the, the average litterer in Texas was 18 to 35 year old, years old, male drove a pickup truck chewed tobacco tobacco chewed tobacco and would have rather shoot the owl than listen to its advice on environmentalism okay and so they're like they they realized that their target market was not being met with these nice signs and cartoon owls um, and, and so they realized that they couldn't appeal to the emotions of these these um, bubbas Hold on. If you're from Texas today, can I just get a, like a yeehaw? yeehaw? All right. All right. Yeah. That was weak, y'all. That was. Okay. So, so Bubba wasn't listening to the owl. And Bubba didn't care about the sign that said, please don't litter. And, and, and what this firm said is they, we've got to form a sense of identity for these, these Bubbas so they won't pollute anymore. And so they came up with the, the slogan, don't mess with Texas. And these signs started appearing everywhere. I love this 10 to a thousand dollar fine. Let's not put any rough, you know, real strict barriers on it. (laughs) I mean, let's, let's just go ahead and let's call it like it is. You know, if you throw your entire trash bag out, that's a thousand dollars, a gum wrapper, 10 bucks, you know? Um, so I don't know how they did this, but don't mess with Texas. And, um, you know, they, they started running these ads that, that starred celebrities who were Texans. Because, man, you're from Texas. You don't care about anybody else. You're like, oh, there's 49 other states? I didn't know. You know? And so you're like, if they get celebrities who weren't from Texas, they'd be like, who cares? He's not a Texan. And so, so they got Texan celebrities to do these ads. And I want to give you a word picture of one of them. Okay. So one of these ads was two star football players Ed Tootall Jones and Randy White, okay. And some of you are like, Amen. I don't know who these guys are, but it's all good, okay. So Randy and Tootall are the, the the commercial is Randy and Tall walking down the highway picking up trash, and pretty soon one of them goes, one of, one of them says this. Tall says. Did you see the guy who threw this out of the window? You tell him that I got a message for him. That's a good Texas accent right there. <laughs> so Randy White steps forward with a beer can in his hand that he had picked up off the road. You know, he stands stands up with a beer can and he says, "I got a message for him too." And, and then a voice that's off camera says, "What's that?" You know, I, I just kind of—I don't know what the—I just kind of picture like a real soft you know, girl voice being like, oh, what, what's the message, you know? And, and then, then Randy White crushes the beer can in his hand and says, don't mess with Texas. Okay? You tell this is the eye that I got a message for him. I got a message for him too. What's that? Don't mess with Texas. You guys get the picture? That's the ad. And like Texas ate it up. I mean, they loved it, loved it. And in one year, roadside litter was reduced by over 20%. In five years, it was reduced by over 80%. Why? Because they didn't appeal to the emotions of Bubba. They gave Bubba an identity. And out of that identity, certain actions came about. You don't mess with Texas. And all of a sudden, these Bubbas started holding each other accountable. This guy's got a beer can ready to throw it. And one one bubba just like hits him in the face. Don't mess with Texas. And he's like, oh, dude, I forgot. Don't forget again. I'll break your nose. That's how it was. That's how I picture it anyway. In in Kansas, it was like, you know, give a hoot, don't balloon. And we're all just a bunch of wimps. And so we followed that and it was fine. All right, so here's... I just cracked on Kansas. It's too bad. It's a beautiful state. Sometimes. What happened was it formed an identity for people. And for Texans, they began applying this identity, don't mess with Texas, way beyond littering. And you started coming up with stuff like this, right? And it wasn't, all of a sudden, it wasn't a road, road sign, it was like a shirt and a pin and a hat. And a, all kind, and like it's on a pencil, it's like bumper stickers, it's everywhere. Nobody has any clue that it had to do with a anti-littering campaign. They just knew you don't mess with Texas. And I have never met a Texan who was not proud of their state. Have you? You haven't. I can tell you that already. I mean, you talk to a Texan about their state, and they, they like they're like bubbling over with don't mess. With Texas. And the reason is this campaign gave them initially an identity that led to particular actions, but that identity bled into all kinds of other actions as well. And so, what Paul wants to say to us today is forge your identity on this reality. You are a citizen of heaven. And so, what that means is if you can base your identity on that, all sorts of other actions are going to follow. All sorts of of good and godly uh, grace-giving ways of living are going to follow if we forge our identity on the fact that we are citizens of heaven. We are commissioned to bring God's rule, reign, and culture right here on earth. And let me encourage you, church, towards a posture of engagement in the culture, of engagement at your workplace, of engagement in your schools, of engagement in this world, because God does not plan and just have this, this grand plan for us to just get out of here. God has a plan to make this place brand new through you and I. He's looking for partners. And he's wanting to say to you, forge your identity on that and get to work. I want to talk to you about three things. And I'm going to build three mini-messages after the message I've already preached. So stick with me. Because I, what we've talked about so far is really abstract, right? I mean, you all could go home and be like, oh, live like heaven instead of hell. <laughs> you know? And like, you, you could be like, you like encourage, you know, that's, that's like our new identity, man. Like, live like heaven, you know? Like when you're, like, Friday night, you're partying, like, hey, dude, let's go live like heaven! Come on, that's funny. You got to give me a little bit of more credit than that, okay? So we're gonna live like heaven instead of like hell. And here's how. All right, here's three ways. Now this is really broad scoped. I mean, living with, and bringing the culture of heaven is such a huge thing. I want to give you three things that I think are central to the gospel and central to heaven living. And the first is loving your neighbor. Throughout Scripture, the idea that our love for God. Is, is, is expresses itself through love for people. That's central to the gospel. That as we receive the love of God, and as we love God sort of vertically, now I've just said that we're not going, you know, the heaven's not way up there, but just for visual-wise. If we love God vertically, that plays itself out in loving horizontally. That if we love God, there's also this love for people. In other words, if you say that you love God and then you hate people, that simply is not a congruent picture for your life, and, and nor is it what Scripture teaches our neighbor is not just our neighbor. Our neighbor is anyone that we come into contact with throughout the day, whether we know them well and we're spending time with a good friend or whether we just have sort of a a chance meeting with someone, someone checking us out in the line or whatever. Uh, Our neighbor is anyone that we come into contact with throughout the day. And what I'm not trying to do is is say that while you're buying your groceries at Walmart you have to share the gospel with the checker. What I'm saying is we ought to be on, on sort of alert of ways in which we can love our neighbors. Is there a need that I can meet? Let me give you a few examples examples of how you might be able to do that this week. You can help someone in need. You can be a comforting presence in a time of crisis. Someone you know this week will go through a crisis, and they will need someone not to give them all the answers, not to tell them the, the pat answer. They will need someone to sit with them and be a non-anxious presence, and that's a great way to love your neighbor, to love someone. Be comforting in a time of presence. You know what? You could pay off somebody's debt. Some of you are have been blessed financially, and uh, there's someone here that's struggling with debt, you could pay that off. I heard a story this week of a student who had $31,000 in loans. His uncle's like, hey, I wanted to go out for lunch. And the student's like, okay. Uh, And they go out to lunch and the whole lunch is surrounded around the fact that this uncle is going to pay off the student's debt in full. Some of you are in a position to do that. And God might be calling you to radical generosity. That's a great way to love somebody. Uh, Some of you others might have maybe elderly neighbors and you see them carrying in groceries and you might just come on and and lend a helping hand. There's all kinds of ways that we can show God's love in practical ways because central to the gospel is that our love for God expresses itself in love for people. Central to the gospel is also this idea of forgiveness. Forgiveness. The message of the kingdom of God is that forgiveness has arrived in Jesus Christ. The message of the kingdom of God is that forgiveness has arrived for you and I in the person, death, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you and I have received a radical forgiveness if you've accepted Christ as your Savior. And so central to that, just as we love God and that expresses itself in people, if we have been the recipient of radical, unheard of generosity and forgiveness in our life, then we are, it is our responsibility to allow that forgiveness to overflow in forgiving others. And so for some of you, your next step this week will be to offer forgiveness to someone. As we have been forgiven, so we also ought to forgive. Now some of you are being hindered from what God wants to do in your life because you have not forgiven someone that you need to forgive. And it's limiting God's activity in your life. It's limiting the power of God to flow through you in your life. And so what you need to do is you need to forgive them this week. Now, they may be dead. It may be something that reconciliation simply is not possible because they're not interested, because they've passed away, whatever. But let me say to you today that reconciliation takes two people. Forgiveness only takes one. You can still forgive someone, and so some of you today—that's your step. It doesn't mean that what they did is right. Hear me today. If you forgive someone, it does not mean that what they did was right. It's not a concession that says, "Okay, that action that you did against me was okay." That's not forgiveness. Neither is it is it a way of. of, Neither does it mean to say that you're weak that in your forgiveness you're actually made weak or run over. Forgiveness is actually the greatest position of power because it allows you to be a conduit for the power of God in your life as you forgive. The most powerful God of the universe, the God of the universe, the most powerful man took on flesh, was beaten so that he might forgive us. And you might say that's weakness in Christ, but on the cross, Christ was actually his strongest. That what looks like weakness is actually strength. So some of you need today to overcome the barrier that says it'll, it'll be a concession that, 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 that what they did was okay. It'll display weakness in me. You need to, you need to offer up forgiveness to allow the power of God to move through your life in a way that you maybe have never experienced before through forgiveness. It's it's appealing your case to a higher court and your life is now a portal to the power of God through forgiveness. So loving our neighbor is a great way to live like heaven. Forgiveness and then community. Community and confession. Heaven living is always done in community. Always. Heaven living, the life of the kingdom of God, is always lived in community. And so many times we try to isolate ourselves. So many times we, 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 we exempt ourselves. But let me tell you, you've, you need other people. And some of you today, you need, you're, you're longing for that community, but you're expecting everyone else to do the work for you. And so you come to church And you just kind of sit in the corner and you say, come and talk to me, everybody. And and I believe that in this church, you will have people that will come up and introduce themselves and welcome you. But don't hinge your experience of community on someone else. You've got to take responsibility for that. You want to experience community in this church, in school, in your neighborhood? You've got to open your life up. And what some of you are doing is you're longing for community while you build a shell around you. You say, I just don't experience community, but you've built a, a warehouse around yourself so that no one can break in. And so you need to take very practical steps toward entering into community, toward opening yourself up to community. This may be a number of things. It might be uh, something as simple as uh, attending a program of the church that's meant to build community, like a newcomer's luncheon. It it may be joining a life group. It may be going to an all-church barbecue that we're doing this summer. But for some of you, before all of that, is you need to make a commitment to be in church regularly. You're like missing out on community, but you're you're here once a month or once every six weeks. And I'm telling you today, you'll never experience community if that's what you're doing. And so for some of you, before you even participate in the life of the church, you just need to commit to being here. And that'll help you begin to experience community. Others of you are experiencing really strong community, and it's great. It's great. But your community is so strong that you also have built a warehouse around yourself so that no one can get in. And you're experiencing community, but no one can break into your community. And you're not allowing anyone else in. So when it comes to community and and living like heaven, some of you need to open yourself up for the possibility of being in community. And some of you need to open up your community so that others might come in. Because we're, we're either direction there and how we experience it. But God's new world includes people from all walks of life, every shade of color of skin, and so we need to get used to this thing of community. Because that's living like heaven.